Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I remember crouching down, looking up, and at this point, it's like a canopy of tracer rounds going overhead. Rick came to Harry and I and said, guys, I'm really, really sorry. You know, I've spent a lot more money than I thought I was going to have to spend getting this team going. And we ran from the front of the building all the way around to the back part of the, our shop, naked as Jaybird, except for our, our boots. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I might sound like Donald Duck, but I'm Steve Wade. <laughs> Man, how am I supposed to follow that up? <laughs> My name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Sane Vault Podcast, where I have yet to hear from that certain armed forces flight demonstration team. <laughs> so I'm going to make another offer. U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, give me a call. <laughs> I'll fly with you tomorrow. Just say the word and I will be there, man. Well, I understand there's room on the local television helicopter if you want to get on that. No. <laughs> 
no, I'm going to fly with the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels. Plus, I mentioned my former student, Michael Mosteller, last week. We've been in touch. Uh-oh. He insists as soon as he is in a higher position of authority and he can make such calls, he promised that I would be in one of those planes flying alongside him. Well, there you go, Rick. Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> I cannot wait. Steve, this week we have another great interview with Bill Elliott. This week he's going to talk about the 1992 season, which was documented in a certain book by the name of NASCAR's Greatest Race by an awesome author. And he also talks about some of the lean years when he moved back to his own family on team. And he actually called that the worst decision of his career. Well, he's not alone with that. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, he talks about kind of the rebirth of his career with Ray Evernham. And we also talked about Chase and kind of the impact that watching Chase has had on Bill. In our second segment, we are going to be talking about the 2001, the Winston All-Star Race that featured probably, I don't know, you could make a case for that being the most controversial call in that event's history. Well, let's call it the never-ending story, (laughs) because we didn't think that race, between the rain and the conditions that it brought on the racetrack and the time taken to pause that race, to let the rain and the lightning go by. We didn't think it was ever going to end. The race ended at 1 in the morning. That's right. Right as they took the green flag, rain started falling, and they had a pile up in turn 1, and Jeff Gordon thought that his night was over. Right. I think again there, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get into that in our second segment. And this week, Steve, we have more Patreon support. All right. It's coming this week from Rick Phillips, Mary Zero, and also Randall Hensley. And those papers, that's been a big deal to a lot of people. I bet. And I have, I think, five, maybe ten issues left. Okay. So that offer is still on the table, folks. Give us $5 a month in support on Patreon. You get one issue. Give us 10, you get two issues. Give us 20, you get four. And hey, if you want to do $100 a month, I'll find some more news. I bet you will. Yeah. So yeah, we'll get you hooked up. Also on PayPal, we had support from Christopher Tanner and Mary Zero. All right. So not only did she sign up for Patreon, she also signed up on PayPal. So Mary, you're my new best friend. (laughs) Had a girl, Mary. Help us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Listen, I could use the help because I've got two boys graduate from high school in a week. In a week, Steve. I know how you feel. Been a while now, but I know how you feel. Just shovel money in a hole, man. (laughs) (laughs) It never stops. The next two or three years, 89, 90, 91, you were still winning, but not maybe quite as many races, and you slipped in the standings. At what point did the idea to maybe make a move to another team begin look, to take shape? I looked at that in, in 90, 91. It, it was just time. Things had gotten stagnant. You know, uh, other teams had caught up. Technology was catching up. We wasn't keeping up with the times, and it was time to go. Time to move. I'm assuming you had other offers, or was it always going to be junior or stay put? Well, I wanted to stay in a forward. I mean, that was kind of my main goal. And, you know, junior, you know, forward kind of wanted me to go to junior, so it made better sense. You know, and, and Harry Melling at the point in time, you know, he'd, he'd gone through the good years, and, he, you know, he'd come up one day, and he didn't know if he wanted to continue to race or yes or no or whatever. And I said, look, I, I, I went to his office and sat down and talked to him. I, I actually went up there and sat and talked to him before I did anything. I said, look, Harry, I said, I need to, to make a change and try something different for a period of time. I said, then that'll give you some time. You know, if you want to continue to race, we'll come back, revisit whatever we're going to do and go from there. But... You know, I sat down with with everybody and said, look, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And and so that's what I did. You do go over to juniors, and after the Daytona 500 in 92, 
you win the next four races. How surprised were you that you clicked so well? You know, I was, I'd heard horror, horror stories about Tim Brewer. <laughs> I love really, Brewer. you know, yeah. who hadn't yeah. heard horror stories yeah. about Tim Brewer, but I'll tell you what, I, I said this downstairs earlier. I said, as far as a person calling a race in his era, I'd never met anybody. I'd never worked anybody as good as he was at calling a race. Yeah. I mean, he could off the cuff, he could make decisions and he could keep up with things. I don't know how he did it. I mean, he may, he may have had a computer there or magic or somebody telling him what to do, but, <laughs> yeah. but he was one of the best I'd ever been around calling a race. And I mean, we just clicked. I mean, Tim and I, you know, we went through the year, had a great time, had a lot of fun, enjoyed the heck out of it. You know, just had some issues there again at the end of the year. We we tore up engines two or three times that we never had any problem. And then I know Charlotte, we we broke a suspension part that never breaks on a race car that did break and then ended up just coming so close and didn't win. But uh, then Junior – him and Brewer have a little spat. And one <laughs> little spats. <laughs> one thing leads to another, yeah. and, and it kind of upsets our whole deal. And then, you know, Mike was a crew chief of next year, and, and I love Mike to death, and we did a great job, but we never we never clicked until the next year, till the third year into my deal, uh, what, 94, I guess. And uh, it, it just kind of – I think that whole deal with Junior and Flossie kind of – Put the whole team in a different aspect, right? Know? And and it's 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 funny how different dynamics take shape in these race teams as as you go through your era. You know, it's no different in football teams or baseball or whatever sports you play. You know, a certain dynamic comes together, and it it's almost like a magic. You know, you, yeah. Just like us in our in our team in the eighties. You know, we just everything just came together and clicked. And you know, you can. You can buy the best guy, you can pay the best people, you can do the best thing, but it don't it don't always get you the same results, you know. And I think that's what you look at as as time goes on. And I just think that 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 whole situation affected the race team. And then then I think Junior was at the point by just that next year or two that he was ready to get out of it anyway. Which I don't know when he would made when he made that decision, but but it just. But like I said, it just put the whole race team in a tailspin, you know, from that point on. As good as things went, early in the year, the last several races of the year, the wheels basically fell off, like you said. And you and I talked for the book that I wrote, NASCAR's Greatest Race, about the 92 Hooters 500. And you said that by the time you got to Atlanta, you were basically just racing for a race win. You didn't feel like maybe you were in contention for the championship? No, I didn't feel like we were close. I mean, really? too many other guys that had way too many points on us at that point in time. Yeah. You know, I figured it'd be down between Davey and those guys. I mean, Davey, as, da- as good as Davey run, you know, Davey would probably have been the definite one to to win the championship. You know, when Allen, Allen would have been the next, and we were kind of the, the odd man out because we, we blew up at Phoenix – we we messed we blew up at uh, Martinsville and then we had another engine failure at Phoenix and by that time you know we were so far out of it that that I was not thinking championship at all. So you wind up finishing a very close second in the championship and then at the end of '94 you go to do your own deal, but it was a long time before you won again. How hard was that for you that era? That whole era was the biggest mistake I ever made. I, I should have rethought that whole deal because by that time I didn't. I thought we could pull everything together like we did in the '80s, but the super teams were coming along, yeah. like the Hendricks yeah. and yeah. you know, it, it's just like I said a minute ago. If I if I'd have went to Rick Shop when I still had my race team and went through his shop, I'd have went home and closed my shop. I mean, I, that's the truth. I mean, yeah. that's just the way it is. I don't have the resources or the 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 whole deal. And I think Junior Junior was smart enough that at his point in time and his his strong days there before things really changed there in the early nineties. That I think he was he was pretty good at doing that. But but then when when Rick Hendricks came in and you got Penske and you got all the guys that's driving the deal now. It, it just became a whole different animal. 
I talked to Ray Abraham and he said that he came to you at New Hampshire in the garage in 1999 about driving for his deal. And basically before he left the hauler, you had the basics of agreement in place. <laughs> what do you remember about that exchange? Well, you know, I get at the racetrack, or, or I, I don't know when it was, sometime going into that week, or maybe it was at the racetrack, I said, Ray Abraham's looking for me. And I'm thinking, I wonder what he wants. <laughs> so I go into trial, and he says, I want you to drive my car next year. And I thought, are you brain dead or what? Really? <laughs> I yeah. I want to race and forever, you know, and I'm this old, and I don't have nothing to offer. You know, so, really. So why why you want me? Well, I want you. Know, I want you to do this, and I said, well, I don't have anything else. I've exhausted all my resources. You know, Ford Ford has been really really good to me. I hated to leave them, and I struggled with that decision. But there was nowhere else to go. So I thought, well, heck, I'll give it a try. You know, it ain't forever. And really, that was the best thing I ever did. I mean, Ray really helped me turn myself around and proved that I could still halfway drive a race car, and uh, I enjoyed the heck out of it. I had a great time. I mean, me and Ray are still friends today, still talk a lot, and uh, we, we just had a good time. Certain drivers have become so synonymous with the manufacturer that they drive for. you got Richard Petty and Dodge. You've got Dale Earnhardt and Chevrolet. You had Bill Elliott and Ford. You didn't mention Bill Elliott without mentioning Ford and vice versa. How big a deal was it for you? It, it was leave. tough. I struggled with that decision probably harder than anything. But but it's just part of it. I mean, they'll still know you as a Ford. I mean, it's just like I have people come up to me today and say, when are you going to get chasing a Ford? I said, well, it just it just didn't work out. I said it just yeah. didn't, you know, it, there's something, lo and behold, in the future might change. But I said right now, you know, things are where they're at. And, and I said, you know, in today's world and opportunities, and I think at that point in time, even even tw- almost 20 years ago, you look at that and you, you look at the how things have changed in that amount of time, but have really changed in the last five or 10 years. Oh, yeah. You know? So you kind of got to look at opportunities and what's going to give you the best chance of where you're going to go and give you a future in the sport. And, and like I said, Ray... Ray stuck his neck out on me, and and I mean we we ran good, we won races, and uh, you know we worked hard as a team, and uh, you know I just I just cherish the time we had together. You did win races at Homestead in two thousand and one, and then consecutive races the next year at Pocono and Indy. What was it like for you to get those wins after having gone so long without one? Go like a. I mean, it's hard to describe. You know, you know, you could win a race. I mean, and we felt like you're competitive, and we've been competitive a lot. And you know, I look back on all that stuff today, and I feel like that if I could go back and do things differently, I'd be a whole lot better racer than I was even at that point in time. With with even watching the things I've watched the last ten or fifteen years, you know, and seeing kind of where things have evolved. But you know, like I said, I'm just. I'm proud of my span. I'm proud of what I did when I did it. And, you know, it's time for the next generation to come on and do what they need to do. The last few years of your career, you ran basically partial schedules, mostly for the Wood Brothers and James Finch. Uh, Were you basically just racing for fun or were you maybe keeping the seat warm for Chase? I was racing for for more for fun, you know, just, hey, have a good time. I, I, you know, granted, my – my deal is I like to be competitive. I don't have to win a race. You know, your goal is to yeah, win a race, yeah. but you look at things realistically. And my biggest deal, if I can come out of the race and be competitive, if I've had a good day and I ran good and I was competitive all day, hey, that's where I like to be. And, and I mean, just like I, I still tinker around in vintage race and do things, and I just enjoy I just like enjoy being in the car. I mean, it's just fun. Now, you ran an Xfinity race last year. When's your next race? Uh, a week from Sunday. What kind of race? A uh, vintage car race. Oh, I thought I had a scoop. Are you going to do another cup race ever? I doubt it. Okay. I mean, I, the, the problem is today there's, no, there's nobody hardly left. You know, you don't mm-hmm. have anybody you can go to and say, hey, I'm going to put a deal together and I want to come drive your car. 
first off, there ain't many deals to put together anymore. Right. You know, and then the second off, if there is a, a decent deal, I would rather steer it to either Chase or somebody that's that's coming along. Right. I mean, yeah. I've had my day in the sun. You know, if, if there's a lot of things going on, that's one thing. But as, as tight as things have gotten today, it's like, you know. But I had a, good, I had a great time at Road America. I, I've never never been there. I've been up, uh, never raced there. I went up there with Chase several times and, and when he ran Xfinity stuff, and I always thought, man, it would be a cool place to go have fun. I had a great time. I mean, I had a great time doing it. What's it like to watch Chase on the racetrack now and doing well? I, it, the only thing that I get antsy about, I would say, is circumstances. I can't control, yeah. you know, if somebody gets into you and it cuts a tire down or, you you know, something happens or you have a bad stop or you have this or you have that or, you know, it's like you can see it unfolding, but I can't do anything about it. And that's what one thing that I look at is, yeah, I, I, I kind of can see the – what's going to happen here, but I can't control it. So there you go. Last question. There was a time in your life when you struggled to deal with the media and the attention and that kind of thing. Is that something that you made a point to sit down with Chase and talk to him about? This is how you should do it. This is how you should handle it. I just make suggestions, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, and we, and we just make comments as time goes on and, and it's just like uh, when Kurt Busch got out and said what he said after one of the races, and I said, if you want to end your career pretty quick, you might ought to get out and say that. But, but the point <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. is everybody has a bad day. And I don't care if it's you, your wife, your kids, whatever. You know, I can get up one day and somebody can say something to me and, and I can take it one way, but the next day I might take it a totally different yeah. way. You know, and and that's what you got to understand. You know, people are just human. You know, you can't always expect this, the results some days. It's just like it's like the circumstances that happens throughout throughout your life is, is how you handle a particular things. You just you know, I said if if you get frustrated enough, just say, hey, look, I need some time. Give me some time. Collect my thoughts. Come back. I'll answer you questions. Whatever you need to do. But but the but the thing about today is is you've got the nucleus of Hendricks around you. You know, you've got a lot of experience there. You've got Jimmy Johnson to lean on. You know, you've, you've got me. I said, I said, if you've got any questions, come to ask me. I said, I've been through a lot of sides of this sport. I said, I know the mistakes that I made. I know the things that I would like to have corrected. But I was able to live through them and come through it at a time that it wasn't so critical as it is today. You know, just like some of the – the comments that people are saying are, are racist comments or this or that or whatever, you know, it, it's like whatever. I mean, guys, yeah. it, you know, we all make mistakes. And let's get over and going down the road. You know, if we got yeah. a beef, let, let's kind of get out of here on the table and, and make it happen and, and whatever we do and, and make things what what it needs to be. And, and, and we're all adults and we can all work through anything if we just sit down and work through it. I mean, it's just like – it's like your relationship at home. You know, yeah. you can make it good or bad, but it's up to you to make it whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And so there you go. Steve, my friend, check this out. Steve, honest to goodness. We have a sponsor for hey, our podcast. As you so magnificently <laughs> announced. We have a sponsor for our podcast. And best of all, he came to me. Oh, yeah. He made the pitch to me and he asked me, I'll never forget the email. It said, would you be interested and open to my company, you know, helping you out some? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the deal. Brian Kelb has a business in which he deals in authentic vintage t-shirts in all forms of motorsports. He also does, you know, I was checking out his Etsy store. He also does concert t-shirts. So maybe we can get us a couple of Van Halen t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but Brian Kelb, follow him on Instagram at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at 
speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y.com. And Steve, he has just a ton of stuff. And the race that we're going to be talking about in our issue of the week is the 2001 Winston All-Star Race. Right. He's got a, an XL new unworn T-shirt from that event. He's also got a pretty cool caricature T-shirt of Jeff Gordon. And then finally, we have talked the last three weeks to Bill Elliott, and he's got a really, really nice satin Bill Elliott jacket from 1992, size large. Oh, I'll tell you, race fans, you got to check out this inventory. It's really spectacular. Now, I'm kind of stuck on those Van Halen T-shirts. <laughs> Let's see. You can be Wayne, and I'm Garth. How would that work out from Wayne's World? Garth was a dumber one, so you can be Garth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We could call ourselves Beavis and Butthead, and guess who's Butthead? <laughs> we call it Wade's World. <laughs> On top of everything, there's a promo code, 10% discount, enter SCENE when you check out. S-C-E-N-E for your checkout, you'll get a 10% discount. And again, his Etsy store is speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, when Bill made the announcement that he was going to leave Melling Racing and the team that he had been with for his entire Winston Cup career, how much of a seismic change was that? That was pretty that was pretty big. It was, but then again it was not. You have to consider that Junior Johnson's one of the top team owners during that time. He was every bit as successful as Bill's team was during that same period of time. You know, three championships with Daryl Walter. So that was top echelon. And when you have a top echelon team to go to, like Bill, we all thought this union was only a natural and should be very successful. What do you think ultimately Bill's reasons were for leaving Melling? What happened, do you think? You know, I don't know specifically. Uh, all I know is that at some point in time, uh, relationships can wear out, basically in racing. We've seen it time and time again over the years. So I think that Bill may have thought that the best way he could go further his career was to break away from that team. Happened before. It's not an unusual kind of occurrence. One of the really interesting things that stands out to me about the relationship that Bill had with Junior Johnson is just how quickly they came out of the box in 1992. Not only did they win a race, Steve, they won four straight races. They right. ran Daytona, got in an accident midway through the race. They were racing for the lead then, basically. Right. And then they went and they won the next four races. How can a brand new team like that come out of the box and win? That's an interesting question. It's just the right combination. How right? do I don't say that? <laughs> but at that particular time, everybody thought just that. The Bill and Junior thing was going to work. Now, many people thought during that same period of time that Junior was up to something, that he had something going for his cars and Bill. Junior Johnson up to something. How about that? Let me think about Let me try to get my arms around Rattles that one. Rattles the see imagination. If really, <laughs> see if I really Rattles believe it. Rattles the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> but, in effect, that's what they thought. And they began to think even stronger about that after the four-win streak ended and went weeks and weeks and weeks, and Bill didn't win again. Well, Steve, i got to imagine that at least part of the credit for the four straight wins would have to go, at least in part, to Tim Brewer, who was Bill's crew chief at the time, because they seemed to click right off the bat. It seemed that way, and I will say that it probably was that way right off the bat. Uh, you can't have a poor relationship or a lack of rapport with your crew chief, if you are a driver, and win. I don't think you can do it. I think that kind of goes back to the relationship that Herb Nab had with Lenny Pond that we discussed an episode or two ago. Right. They did not get along, and it basically cost Lenny Pond his Winston Cup career. You can plainly see the difference here. I think one positive association for Bill and Tim was productive. Go the other way. 
and the perfect example is Herb Nav and Lenny Pond, and you saw what happened there. So yes, I think there had to be some positive relationship between Bill and Tim at the time. Well, Steve, the flip side of that coin is, as well as Bill and Tim seemed to get along, Tim and Junior. Yeah. I think that became pretty personal. Tim had been working for Junior since the 1970s. Right. I think at one time, Tim kind of saw Junior as a father figure. Things happened. Whatever happened, they kind of went their separate ways. He actually left at one point, I think, to go to work for MC Anderson. Right. And then he came back and... Yeah, they had some success early in 92, but... But, yeah, let's but, just say, let's just say the best I can describe it is uh, an estranged father and son, okay? Uh, the relationship may have been very good in the past at some point, but during this particular time, uh, Tim and Junior were having some kind of difficulty in communicating. By that, I mean, Tim didn't always do what Junior told him, so... That does not sit well with an owner, and nobody really thought about that during this four-race win streak. But they did afterwards because, as I said earlier, Bill's record didn't really reflect that rocket start. And again, I'll repeat, that led to, to people suspecting that Junior had something for those wins that he didn't have following that. And I, also, people began to think that the relationship between Bill and Tim might have been good, but there was something missing between Tim and Junior, especially during this time. I think the only thing missing in their relationship was firearms, <laughs> switchblades, <laughs> billy clubs. Steve, they go into that last part of the season, and the wheels just almost completely come off. They had just horrible racing luck. Yeah, absolutely. And again... That does not contribute to any healthy relationship among driver, team owner, or crew chief. We've seen it. If you don't win or if you don't produce, or if you are subpar to what people expect of you and what you expect of yourself, sometimes things go sour. Well, and they certainly did in 92. And when Bill went into the last race of the season at Atlanta, the 1992 Hooters 500, you know, he was very blunt in saying, I was just racing for the race win. I was out of the hunt for the championship. And I, he wasn't that far behind. He very no. easily could have won the championship. Sure. But I think the mindset there was, let's just race for the best we can possibly get. And, you know, if we win the championship, that's fine. But I, I don't think Bill went into that race expecting to win. Well, I think he took a little pressure off himself by saying, I'm just going to go out and win. Now, what better philosophy to have to win a championship is let's go out and win the race. That's the best you can do. And if you come up short, you come up short. But if you do win the championship, that's an added bonus. So to me, that was a particularly sound strategy. He hadn't won in a long, long time. Winning a race did mean a lot. And history does tell us that he did fall 10 points short in the hunt for that championship. I don't know. I don't know who's right, who was wrong in that deal. But the long and short of it was that Bill Elliott lost the championship. Ultimately, Bill did run 1993 and 1994 with Junior Johnson with, I believe, Mike Beam as the crew Correct. chief. And then at some point in 1994, Bill makes the decision that he's going to move back to a family-owned deal, run out of Dawsonville. And when I asked him about that, Bill made no bones about it. He said that was the biggest mistake of his career. You know, he's not the only driver to say that. Several drivers over the years have owned their own teams. Uh, Daryl Walter comes to mind, Jeff Bodine, uh, Ricky Rudd, all of those guys literally went out of business. And it goes before their time. Buddy Baker owned his own team. Kale Yarbrough owned his own team. You know, who knows why it didn't work out for Bill, and he went from 1994 through several years. Yeah, 2003 Se before he won again. Yeah, so he went through a very long dry spell, and it truly did strike me when he talked about Ray Everham coming to him with the deal Ray was going to form his own team with Dodge backing and all that. Bill actually said, what do I have to offer? Right. One of the two or three most popular drivers in NASCAR history was thinking to himself, what do I have to offer? 
here's what I think he had to offer and probably why he did join up with Ray. Ray, had a, Ray has a solid reputation, okay? As a crew chief, mechanic, leader, whatever you want to call it, it was, it was solid. And when he formed his own team, the thinking was he probably will do very well. So he went after Bill thinking that Bill was the best thing available. And in a lot of ways, Bill was a champion, a proven winner, a record holder, you name it. It was all there. And I think Bill had had it up to his nose with his own team and the problems he was wrestling with. He was always wrestling with problems. I think the biggest reason why drivers did not become successful team owners is that they had to have, wear two hats. They had to look after the money, the team, and the finances. At the same time, they had to go out and drive. And that's not an easy combination to overcome. I think Bill was trapped in that same scenario and decided the best he could do was to move on. It did work out for him because he did wind up winning three more races, including the Brickyard 400. How big a deal was it for Bill to be leaving Ford and driving for any other manufacturer, much less Dodge? Fans are fans of drivers, but they're also fans of cars. There's, don't make any mistake about that. There are Chevrolet fans, Ford fans, and back at the time, Dodge fans. So Bill driving with Ford for so long and being so successful to go over to Dodge had the great on some of the fans. It had to. But at the same time, I don't know that it ultimately made much of a difference to those who supported Bill. I don't think they I don't think they wavered one bit. They overlooked it because he was their man and they wanted him to be successful with Dodge and for a time he was. Bill runs very well with Ray and then the last few years of his career he kind of does various races for various different team owners including the Wood Brothers and including right. James Finch and Joe Nemechek. And right. Joe Nemechek. Oh, yeah. And he said that he was basically just racing for fun. You know, and I, and I kind of thought you know, he was maybe keeping the seat warm for Chase when Chase was ready. <laughs> but what do you think it means to Bill now to see Chase on the racetrack and doing well? Oh, it's got to mean the world to him. I mean, when Chase made it known that he was going to be a driver and came up through the ladder and landed that huge opportunity with Rick Hendrick, Bill had to be delighted. But at the same time, he knew his son would be challenged. Now, you take a young guy like Chase Elliott, who's got a lot of promise and has a great lineage, no doubt about that, but you're putting him in with one of the top teams in NASCAR. This is not a family operation out of Georgia. <laughs> no. You're no. in the big leagues, Chase, and you've got things to prove. And so far, I think Bill is dutifully proud that his son is doing well and has learned. And guess what? is NASCAR's most popular cup driver, like his father. Well, certainly Bill and Chase came up in completely different eras. Because when Bill came up, people could go out and they could party and they could do this, they could do that. And, you know, the word wasn't going to get out. Chase does not have that luxury. Basically, anything Chase does now is open for documentation sure. via social media. So I think Bill has really made it a point to kind of sit down with Chase and say, hey, you know, this is the way I was brought up. This is the way that you're coming up, and you got to be careful there, bud. And he also probably said, in effect, don't be me as I was at the start of my career because back then the number of media was not nearly as high as it is now, particularly on a national level. So you've got to learn to deal with that situation just as much as you have to learn what you're going to do on the track. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, the May 24th, 2001 issue of Winston Cup Scene covered the 2001 Winston All-Star Race. It was controversial from the very beginning because there had been lightning showing around the racetrack. Right, right. The field goes to green just as the rain starts to fall. Which I thought was highly unusual. I mean, let's face it, with the lightning and the rain coming and the rain started falling when the race started... How do you leave cars on the track 
when it's raining. This is a very dangerous situation. Well, it was not. It was not raining on the pace laps. Now, in NASCAR's defense, it wasn't raining on right. the pace laps. But you still had to do something as soon as the race started. I, I nudged the guy next to me up the press box and I said, "Watch this." Yeah. And well, sure enough, the green flag fell. The rain started falling, and going into turn one on the very first lap, Jeff Gordon, Kevin Harvick, Jeff Burton, and Michael Waltrip all wrecked going into turn one. <laughs> Yeah. Surprise! I can only imagine the griping oh, that started as soon as that first tire smoke showed up in turn one. Yeah, and the griping was not absent in the press box either. I mean, we think, what did they think was going to happen as soon as it started raining? And now with the rain and these wrecks, we are going to be here all night. Now, at the time, we didn't think that was really going to be the case, but guess what? <laughs> we were. So Jeff Gordon is coming out of the infield care center. He's sore. His neck is hurting yeah. pretty badly. And he thinks he's going to get to go home. And he goes to the garage thinking that he's going to get dressed to leave the racetrack. And right. His crew is bringing out a backup car. And they're going to allow those four drivers that wrecked in that first lap wreck, they're going to allow them to go to backup cars and run that race. That was not an all-around popular decision. There were people in the garage area and on the other teams that are saying, what, what are you doing here? I mean, this, this is not right. I mean, where else have you ever allowed a team to work on their cars or go to a backup car and continue racing after a wreck? Case in point was this. This is not a points-paying race. NASCAR's philosophy was this was the Winston. It's designed to put on a show. And therefore, we're going to allow these guys to come back and put on a show. Well, we all thought that was a pretty good decision. But also, <laughs> kind of wonder if NASCAR was not someone making up for the fact that that race went green while it was running. So, Steve, here's a question for you. If it had been anybody else other than Jeff Gordon. Well, the Gordon name certainly carried a lot of weight. But I really think that given the circumstances, and those circumstances are, it was the Winston. It was a show. It was not a points-paying race. I stress that because the idea was to entertain the fans and have the best racing possible. So it's only the right thing to do to keep the field intact as much as you can. Now, Jeff Gordon being uh, one of those players, uh, that certainly made a difference in NASCAR's decision. But again, I say that if it had been any other four drivers, NASCAR might well have done the same thing to make up for the fact that they wrecked on circumstances not caused by themselves. It's caused by the elements. And NASCAR probably said, okay, we made a mistake. We're going to make up for it. Jeff Gordon said in this issue, I was coming out of the infield care center and my neck was hurting and my race car was torn up pretty bad. And I got back to the garage area and all of a sudden I saw another car sitting there and I was like, what are they doing? I didn't even know you could do that. When I walked out of the infield care center, my neck was saying, don't get back in the car. Right. But my heart was saying, get back in the car. What changed it for me when I went back down there in the garage and saw those guys working as hard as they were on the car, they wanted to win the Winston, and I was not going to deny them that opportunity. Absolutely. How can you be uh, a successful driver and simply want to walk away from an accident, a race, when you know that your team is right there working on the car and getting ready to go back in because your team wants to win? you got to use common sense. You've got to support your team no matter how you might be feeling at that point. And most successful drivers have always done that, Gordon being no different. Well, Jeff started at the rear of the field in a backup, as did the other cars. He went on to finish fourth in the first 30-lap segment, and then he finished second in the second 30-lap segment, and then he won it all. It was Jeff's third win in the all-star race, and it tied him with Dale Earnhardt for most of the event. Correct. <laughs> and, Steve, you've already talked about it. The race ended at 1 a.m., and Jeff didn't even get to the press box for the winner's interview. Until 2 in the morning. Until 2 in the morning. Now, to be very honest with you, they had to wake me up. No. <laughs> 
I'm just kidding. It's just one of the things that can happen, especially when you have a night race held up by the elements. Uh, it's going to be late, folks. And, of course, poor Jeff. I mean, he, he comes up there in the press box to do his interview at 2 a.m., which I might remind you, other than perhaps somewhere on television or radio, even them, deadlines are long gone. We can't make the paper. The dailies could not make next day's paper. Uh, so they had to uh, improvise from that point on to provide something for the next day. Okay? Now, Scene didn't have that problem. But be that as it may, it made for a very long day and night. You and I have talked about it before, but I hate it when people gripe and complain about born races. And in this issue, some a-hole. <laughs> wrote a story about the Bush Series race at Nazareth, won by Greg Biffle. The headline on the story was Snore Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty creative, you ask me. Who was this a-hole, by the way? Well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was me. I admit it. The Nazareth 200, uh, let's just say it probably isn't going to go down in history as one of the all-time greatest NASCAR Bush Series races. The race featured one pass for the lead on the racetrack. <laughs> one pass for the lead. And as I noted in my story, not many more for position anywhere else. And I'm going to admit it. And I wrote, by the time the checkered flag fell, mercifully ending a boring race, Biffle had built a staggering lead of 8.574 seconds. Ugh. This race <laughs> <laughs> won't make many highlight reels, if any, other than Biffle. Well, to tell the truth, Rick, you had to report on that race. And when you get such a boring race, what do you say? So you got to be creative. I thought you were very creative reporting this race. Well, I don't know. I, what do you say? You know, the radio guys, right. you know, they, they've got it pretty easy. They can make a less than stellar race sound pretty exciting by, you know, voice inflection and all that. But, you know, when you've got you and the printed word and a blank piece of paper. How do you get across to people what actually happened on the track and how bad it was? It's one thing to write about how good it was, but to write how bad it was takes some creativity. There was some pretty notable moments. Kevin Harvick had fell out of the Winston the night before. He had been in that first lap accident, and then he had brake problems, then flew to Pennsylvania for this event, and he finished second. Now, he was doing double duty at that time. He was running full-time on both the Winston Cup and the Bush Series circuits. You know, he had taken over for Dale Earnhardt after Daytona and all that. Well, I can understand the challenge you had, Rick. Consider this. I was at a bristle race one year where Kale won the race by seven laps, not seven seconds, <laughs> seven, seven laps. <laughs> And I thought to myself, now how am I going to write this? And I wasn't half as creative as you were. I think I wrote about eight inches of copy, sent it back, and I was out <laughs> of the track in 45 minutes. Now, that being said, one of the best races that I ever covered had been at Nazareth the year before, and Tim Fetal won that race, and they had been all over each other for the last half of that race. And I loved going to Nazareth because I always drove and I always went through Gettysburg on the way up and spent at least a night in Gettysburg and touring the battlefield and all that. And you and I have talked about our interest in the Civil War before, but there is no more hallowed ground in all of the United States than Gettysburg. And I got to visit it every year. That was cool. Now, one last note that I did want to mention in this issue, there was news of a new stock car racing league the Team Racing Auto Circuit, T-R-A-C, track. Right. And it had some power behind it, Steve. A guy by the name of Robert Wessler, who is the former president of CBS Sports and the network itself. Kel Yarbrough was involved. Carol Campbell, who is the former governor and congressman from South Carolina. And Michael Cranifus, who had been the former head of Ford Motorsports. They were all involved. Right. And never raced a single race. <laughs> I was asked by a radio station about that. They thought it was an interesting concept. And I said, that thing will never see the light of day. It was just far too complex. And I don't know about the dollars they thought they were going to have to raise to make this thing work. But it was a heck of a lot of it. And I can tell you right now, Kale Yarbrough was no part of that. 
in theory, it was probably, it might have been a good idea. Foster some competition with NASCAR, do what ARCA had done for years and years, do what ASA had done for years and years. But it really and truly showed just how expensive and massive an operation NASCAR is. That was the key. I mean, one thing, the team concept was hard for race fans to absorb, okay? And the other thing was, I don't think that these these guys had any idea how much money they had to raise to get this going. I mean, you're talking about acquiring teams to be representing cities, and then they had to acquire drivers to, you know, drive those cars for those cities. Now, who's going to pay for all that? That meant trying to go out and finding investments, and most of that had to come from sponsors. Well, the money only goes so far. I don't think anybody who had any interest in racing was willing to invest on this high-stakes gamble. Steve, that about does it for this episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. But before we go, I would like to remind everybody to go over to YouTube and check us out on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, Steve. How about that? As an incentive to our listeners, it's not video of Steve and me. That's not... <laughs> no, we that, melt video cameras. Yeah, that's not the deal here. Our friend Tom McCourt, known as NASCAR Man underscore RR, we are going to be producing some videos featuring audio from our podcasts and our interviews with the various NASCAR stars that we've talked to. And he's done a handful so far. He was the one that did the history of the Winston Cup scene two or right. three months ago. He's put together a video on Bill Elliott's flight in the F-16. He's put together one on Bill Elliott and the 1987, the Winston. Right. And then he's put together one, and we've not made it public yet. It's been available to our Patreon viewers. But he's put together one on Bobby Allison and the 1987 Winston 500, where he had his wreck and tore down the catch fence. Davey went on to win. And Tom just did. I don't know what he does for a living, but he is not a video producer or anything like that professionally but this is a professional job that he's done absolutely and you know i want to encourage fans to go because not only is it informative hey this is fun seeing this like this is really fun so help us out on patreon.com slash the same bought podcast help us out on paypal.me slash the same bought podcast and steve we're going to keep doing this deal we are going to keep preserving nascar history and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. And so am I. And I'm very, very grateful to the uh, donors for Patreon and PayPal for helping us get along.